Right, good to see you tonight. Take your Bibles, please, and join me in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we've been making our way through this epistle on Wednesday nights. I really enjoy going verse by verse. And it's because of things that we're about to address tonight. It forces us to address things that are otherwise uncomfortable, as we'll see as we go. So, we're just going to jump right into this. We'll do a very short, well, it won't even really be a recap. But we saw last week that we're not to be filled with wine, wherein is excess, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. As liquor will control every part of a drunkard, so the Spirit is to control every part of us. We are to be completely controlled by the Spirit of God. It's not some mystical thing which is difficult to achieve. It's not some strange manifestation which proves we are spirit-filled. But the text actually tells us what it means to be spirit-filled. And that's what amazes me about the Bible. If we would just stop taking verses out of context, we might could actually get the meaning of what's being said. And we were told in the verses that follow there, we're going to read here in a minute, but we're to speak to ourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. It's also, um, it means that we are to give thanks for all things um, to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God. And right after that command to be spirit-filled, Paul, who I'll remind you is under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, launches into relationships. First, he addresses wives. Then he addresses husbands. Then he'll address children. Then the employee and then the employer. And so we have to be spirit-filled if we're going to do this. Amen. Um, Because we naturally don't like to do some of these things. And that's why it follows, be spirit-filled. Be controlled by the Spirit because what Paul's about to lay out for us is going to require that. Is everybody with me tonight? With that in mind, let's read verses 22 through 23. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. 
Of course, all the Bible is profitable. The Bible works every time because it's timeless. When we go to the Bible, we must believe, we must trust, and we must have faith that God's ways are the best. That no matter what society says, the Bible never bends to cultural shifts. God's word never changes. That's a comfort. You ever had a boss who always was changing things? I always hated when new commanders came in because I had to learn a new way of doing things. Wasn't that the old way was right or wrong or that the new way was right or wrong. That's just the way they wanted it. God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His principles were designed to work in the Garden of Eden. They were designed to work in the first century church. And they're designed so that they'll still work today. And as believers, we ought to structure our lives and our homes according to God's Word. We've now arrived to a portion of Scripture which is very needed in the times in which we live. I personally am very passionate about the family because God is very passionate about the family. And the fact is, God ordained the home before He ordained the church. God is so serious about this issue that if it were to come to my attention that you're serving in this church and you have some sort of family problem that is unchecked, no desire to resolve it, and it's just spiraling out of control, I will pull you from that ministry so that you can get your house in order. That's how serious God is about it. Now, I'm not saying there's not going to be disagreements (laughs) or arguments. But if you're going to place ministry above your family, then we'll just remove the ministry. Amen. Um, If you're headed for divorce, I'll take you from the ministry. If marriages are failing, if parent-child relationships are failing, there's no effort to restore them, there's no effort to fix, then we'll pull you from ministry. We are never commanded to lose our families as we serve God. You've heard me say before, and I mean it with all my heart, but if I ever sense I'm losing my wife or my children, I will cease to be the pastor here. And I mean it. If I start losing my family, this church is not going to take the place of my family. Now, understand what I'm saying. If my children grow up and they go astray after they leave the house, I'm not stepping down. If they want to be a knucklehead after they leave, that's between them and God. And uh, I don't feel like any man of God needs to step down because some child went astray after they left the home. Um, They have to make their own decisions. But while in my home, the Bible commands that we are to have our children in subjection with all gravity. And by the way, let me just say this. You don't have the right to look at another family that has a child that went astray after they left and say, well, this is what you did wrong. But that's what people do. And I think what people tend to do is they look at other families with their family's personalities in mind. But all kids are different. I mean, I got four kids. They all got different personalities. And uh, some buttons have to be pushed differently. You got to find what works. And so don't look at another family and say, well, I know what you did wrong. Um, Actually, you may not know because you didn't live there. Uh, You don't know what all took place in the home. And so I'll remind you of this. Adam and Eve... We're in a perfect environment 
and they rebelled. All it takes is for a wife to rebel, a husband to rebel, for a child to rebel from these commands that we are given in the Scriptures. And there's going to be chaos in the home. And if it's not dealt with properly, chaos will enter into the church because churches are made up of families. And in fact, we are a family of God in this body. However, if the husband, the wife, and the children will do what is commanded in these passages that we'll consider over the next few weeks, then things will go well. But it takes all three obeying the Lord. All it takes is one to get out of whack. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Uh, what we are going to discuss over this little mini-series within the series is not my opinion. We see today that mankind would not have naturally established how God laid out the family. Man would not have chosen that, but it's what God commands. Um, what I will preach is not meant to be offensive to any, but a preacher cannot be effective if he has to constantly be concerned about the feelings in the congregation. Let me, let me say what I mean by that. Uh, I'm not against any uh, in here who have been through a divorce. However, I cannot allow that to keep me from preaching against divorce. Right? Does that make sense? Everybody's situation is unique, and so n none of that's blanket, but it's not meant to be offensive. Um, it may stir up past hurts. It may remind you of past mistakes, but it can't keep us from preaching the Word of God. I'm glad you're here, by the way, uh, whatever you've been through. And by the way, if you've been through a divorce, you understand the hurt of that, and it should be your genuine desire for no one else to have to go through that. And so that's why we give the warnings, and I would ask you to allow me to give the warnings without being offended. The same goes for wayward children. I'm not against you if your child has rebelled against God. There's plenty here who have gone through that, but it cannot prevent the preacher from preaching the whole counsel of God. In our text, we see that wives are to submit, husbands are to love, and the beginning of chapter 6 tells us that children are to obey. That's God's formula. It has been, it still is, and it always will be God's formula for the home. Dave Summerdorf preached an excellent series entitled The Blueprint for a Happy Home, in which he talks about wives submit, husbands love, children obey. And He's coming here this year for family camp. Everybody needs to take off from work and be there. It'll be worth your investment. And I'm going to twist his arm to resurrect that series because I would like to uh, have everyone hear that again. And for those who are new around here to hear it maybe for the first time, he gave that uh, roughly 20 years ago now, somewhere around there, uh, here. And so we're excited to have him coming uh, to preach our family camp again. But that's God's plan, or as he rightly entitles his series, it's God's blueprint. So I decided to look up, what does a blueprint mean? A blueprint is a guide for making something. It's a design or pattern that can be followed. And then it gives this example. Want to build the best tree house ever? Draw up a blueprint and follow the design carefully. God's word is a blueprint. It gives us the design for our lives. It gives us the design for our church. And if we follow God's design carefully, 
then we can have the kind of home that we find on this blueprint. The problem is, too many will look at the blueprint and say, I really wanted that window over here. And I bet you that door would be better over here. And, and maybe we could increase the square footage. And I think it'd be good if we would add this or subtract that. And the next thing you know, you got a whole new set of blueprints. When if you would just follow the original design carefully, you would have ended up with what you were seeking for to begin with. And so when we think about this idea of a blueprint, God being the master builder, he has a better plan than we could come up with. Society is going to tell you that this is outdated, that it no longer applies, and try to get you to follow a different blueprint. But I'll remind you that the Bible says in Psalm 127 in verse 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain, which build it. God drew the blueprint, God is the architect, and God must be the builder of our homes. He doesn't need our ideas on how to improve them. He gave Moses precise details on how he wanted the tabernacle. Solomon had an exact plan of how the temple was to be built. And as families, God has given us precise details on how the home is to be structured. When a wife refuses to submit to her husband as unto the Lord, what they are saying is, I now know better how to build a marriage than God does. They've changed the blueprint. When a husband refuses to love his wife as Christ loved the church, he is saying, I now know better than God how to build a marriage, and he's changed the blueprint. When children refuse to obey, they are saying to God, I know better how to structure a house, and they've changed the blueprint. When we leave God out, we're leaving the wise master builder out of the picture. We're heading for trouble. And then we end up with faulty homes that won't pass God's inspection. So as we go through these verses, I want you to consider how would God appraise your home? Let God be the chief inspector. How much is your home valued in God's eyes? And if he finds something wrong, are you willing to let him tell you what is wrong? And then are you willing to fix it? You can do all, all of the things which will give your home a good curb appeal. But God knows what goes on inside. Amen. You can come to church week after week. You can dress up the outside. You can have great curb appeal. And everybody may think that you're the example of marriage, the example of godliness in a godly home. And you can have all of us fooled, but God knows what goes on in your home. You can smile sweetly in here. You can uh, wear all the right things. You might even know the verses. But what happens when you leave here? You've got great curb appeal, but how is your marriage really? So let's examine our homes in the light of Scripture. Disclaimer, my marriage is not perfect. Your marriage is not perfect. 
A wise woman sitting right over here told me once, you better be careful because some people are going to look up in the pulpit and think you have it all together. And they might begin to desire something they shouldn't desire. And I want to tell you, I, I wish I was a better husband. And your marriage isn't perfect because we're all sinners. We've all married damaged goods. None of us have this completely figured out. We understand what the words say, but uh, I've been married now 23 years, and we keep pressing. And so uh, we've got to understand how God has structured all of this. Since we still sin, since we are not in a state of sinless perfection, our marriages are not perfect. But understand that that does not mean that your home cannot be the picture of Christ and the church. Uh, None of us get to the point, though, where we can say we no longer need to work on our marriage. I've said it many times and will continue to say it, but you don't just accidentally stay married for 50 years. It takes work. People can find all kinds of reasons to get divorced, but it takes work to stay together. And by the way, more disclaimer, when I say marriage, I'm referring to one man and one woman. Uh, Governments may change the definition of marriage, but we won't do that in here. So we're always working on our marriages because we are totally opposite. Little girls play house, boys build forts. Women shop, men buy. (laughs) Women converse, men inform. Women like feelings, men like facts. Women like drama, men like competition. Women want romance, men just want the finale. God predominantly gives the wife one command. Now, obviously, as we will begin to break this down, there's more to it. But he predominantly gives the wife one command, and this is this. Submit to your husband. God predominantly gives the husband one command. Love your wife. And here's the reason why is because we are selfish. As a result, a woman will rebel against her husband. So God has to tell the wife, submit. A man will love himself to the point that he will use his wife for his own selfish gain. Or a man will abuse his wife and end up forsaking his wife. And so God tells the husband, love your wife. And because we are selfish, if we aren't careful, we will rebel against God's way. And what we're actually trying to do is reverse what God put in place all the way back there when mankind fell. In fact, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Is everybody okay so far? All the single dudes are like, yeah, no problem. (laughs) Um, And dudettes. Genesis chapter 3. I'm only introducing this little mini-series tonight. We will make reference back to Genesis in later messages, but I want you to notice what is said after sin entered the world. 
Remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, we're going to get to the text here in a minute, the Bible says their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They made aprons of fig leaves. I don't have time to get into all this, but anyway, they, they now had shame. They now had nakedness as a result of sin and When they heard the voice of God, they hid themselves in the trees in the garden. And isn't that a funny thing to try to do, to hide from God? Of course, God knew exactly where they were and what had happened. And when God inquired, man blamed the woman and ultimately God. It was the woman that thou gavest to me. And the woman blamed the serpent. Now let's pick up and read verses 16 through 19 of Genesis chapter 3. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And all the women said, Amen. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and Hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. We're not going to address childbirth, but as a result of mankind's fall their sin, God said, Eve's desire would be to her husband. And Adam was to rule over her. And to Adam, God said, because you hearkened to your wife, the ground is cursed. And in sorrow thou shalt eat of the ground all the days of thy life. There will be thorns and thistles, and in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread until you return back to earth. In other words, you die. There's a tremendous amount here that we won't take the time to get into, but just quickly, God gave Adam dominion before Eve even showed up on the scene. (laughs) Showed up. God gave the command concerning the tree that they were not to eat from that tree, and God gave that command before Eve was made. Adam was the one who had dominion. He had the responsibility to instruct his wife in what God commanded, but he didn't do so precisely. He told Eve that not only could she not eat of the tree, but he took it one step further and said, don't even touch it or you'll die. One might say he added a guardrail, and I like guardrails. They keep us in certain lanes. And in some cases, a guardrail is a good thing, but we can also say that if a guardrail is used in a wrong way, It keeps us from fulfilling God's command. And so Adam was instructed to keep and dress the garden, but how could he do that properly if he's making rules that you can't touch certain trees? And not to mention, how much easier would it be for Eve to continue her transgression if she touched the tree and didn't die like her husband said? Well, I might as well eat. I didn't die when I touched it. So there's a lot of things going on here that we don't have time to get into But uh, here's where I'm going with this. Eve did not obey her husband who had the dominion. 
She took of her desire. Adam obeyed uh, his wife and took the easy way getting a meal. And God says, for now on, wives, your desire will be to your husband. And your husband, his rule over you is going to increase. He already had the dominion, but now uh, there was going to be a little bit more to this. And, and husbands, you're going to have to labor for food. How many of you men love going to work? Mankind has been bucking against God's system ever since. There's been a quest to reverse the roles which God established all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The Apostle Paul gets blasted for pinning what he did under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, but all Paul was doing was listening to God who was going back to Genesis chapter 3. Wives want the role God never intended for them to have. And husbands don't step up into the role that God designed them to have. And the battle ensues. And there's dysfunction in the home. I'm not even speaking professionally. I'm just talking spiritually and within the church. Women will take the role of the spiritual head if it's left unchecked. The husband will just sit back and be lazy. God wants the man to labor, to labor in spiritual things so that you can feed your family, you can feed the church as well. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This will be our last reference tonight. In this chapter, Paul's addressing the problem with role reversal within the church as it relates to man and woman, husband and wife. Let's read verses 1 through 15. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I, as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man, is, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given for her for a covering. Now, some goofy teachings have come about as people have misunderstood what this text is saying. Everything depends on context. Amen. This isn't teaching us that women need to cover their heads with some hat or veil when they come to church or pray or serve, some make it say that. 
And I'm not against those who will take that approach. We, we knew some folks that did that, and God bless them. They served, they were faithful, and I'm not going to argue that. And if you want to put a little veil on your head, put a little veil on your head. Notice carefully what is said before all this there in verse 3. Look again. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. We have an order given here. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of the woman. Therefore, as we read these verses, when we read of the man's head and the woman's head, it's referring back to verse 3, not a physical covering. When we understand this, these verses mean a lot more than some of us were ever taught. In verse 4, when a man prays or speaks, having his head covered, he dishonors his head. Who is the head of man? Christ. Look at verse 7 again. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Man is not to cover his head with another authority. That's what this is teaching. It's not that man can't have a hat on. But a man is not to be covered over by a woman's authority. Stay with me here. And so if he covers his head with another authority, he's dishonoring his head, which is Christ. Because he is the image and glory of God. And as such, when he's not operating in the way that God designed him to operate... He is now bringing dishonor to Christ. Is everybody following me? Because we're going to dig deeper. And so God has made God has made man in His image, but God made woman in the image of man. It was man that God gathered the dust, formed man, breathed into him the breath of life. But it was the woman that God took from Adam. And so God is showing us here this order that has been established in creation. Now look at verse 5. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. This is not telling us that if a woman comes to the altar and she doesn't put on a hat, she doesn't wear a veil, it's not saying that she's dishonoring herself. What this is teaching us is if a woman prays, if a woman speaks uncovered, she's dishonoring her head. Who's her head? It's the man. It's the husband. Everybody following this? And she might as well have her head shaven is the picture because she has left the covering of her husband to go over here and have authority that God never intended. And, and Paul says you might as well have your head shaved. You might as well look like a man because you're operating as a man. And, in, and it dishonors her husband because she has come out from the subjection of her husband. She has come apart from what God has designed her to be. And in verse 6, we see it as a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven. Or in other words, to be out from under her husband. And he's asking... Uh, if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, the answer is obvious. 
The answer was yes, it's a shame for a woman to be shaved, uh, shaved on her head, and, and therefore she needs to be covered. She needs to have the covering of her husband. And in verse 13, it's not comely, which means it's not suitable or proper for a woman to pray unto God uncovered in the church. Paul, he's emphasizing here the distinct roles between a man and a woman, between husbands and wives. And in verse 10, a woman ought to have power on her head. It doesn't say over her head. She does not have power over the husband, but she has power. She is to have power on her own head. She is to be um, to place herself by her own power in subjection to her husband. Because any woman that's ever placed herself in subjection didn't do so. Now listen, a man can beat down a woman until she does, but inside, if she submits herself willingly, it is because she has chosen to do that. Isn't that right? And so, uh, anyway, God has a plan in all of this, and, and so she ought to have enough power to follow God's plan. This is symbolic of what Rebecca did when she met Isaac for the first time. Abraham had sent his servant to go fetch a wife for Isaac. That'd be a fun job. And so he, he goes to get a wife for Isaac, and when they returned, Isaac was meditating in the field. Everybody kind of remember the section we're talking about? And when he saw the caravan returning, he gets up and he starts heading that direction to meet them. And Rebekah said, what man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. And the Bible says, Rebekah took a veil and covered herself. And, and, and what all this is saying is she was symbolically showing, I am placing myself under your authority. I am placing myself under your covering. I have taken a veil. I've covered myself. I've come to you. They went into the tent. They got married. And that's what it's picturing. And so when we read all of this, it's not saying that a woman has to wear a veil to pray. It's saying that a woman needs to be in a proper place that God has created for her. And the man has to be in the proper place that God has created for him. And so, um, and finally there, in verses 14 and 15, if a man has long hair, it's a shame. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. And the Bible never says that this defines long and this defines short. But what this is saying is, when a man is covered by a woman, it is a shame to him. It's as if he looks like a woman. It's a shame for that to happen. Why? Because he's taking on the role of a woman. When a woman comes out from under the covering of her husband, she dishonoreth her head. And then what does the husband do? He suppresses himself. And he doesn't fight for that because men are told to labor and they want to be lazy. And so um, anyway, and so it's a shame to them. When a woman is covered properly by her husband, it is her glory. She doesn't take the role of the man. It's, it, it's having long hair. That's her glory, her covering. Is everybody seeing the, the, what's taking place in this chapter? And in verse 16, Paul essentially says, look, if you want to argue about it, forget about it. Tonight was only introduction. God has very definite roles for a man and for a woman. He has a very definite role for a husband and a wife. 
And it not only applies to the home, but it also applies to the church. I'm going to ask you as we go through this that you be honest with yourself. You be honest with God as we study these relationships in our text back in Ephesians. Be willing to change if necessary. Let God build your home and your marriage. Wives submit, husbands love, children obey. We're going to cover wives next week, Lord willing. But wives, don't worry, we'll cover husbands the week after. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the word. Thank you so much for your pattern. I'm just thankful you made it clear. We don't have to guess at what's right. And it's going to go against cultural norms. It's going to go against what the world says is the best way. And we either have faith in your word or we don't. So help us as husbands to love our wives. Help the wives to reverence their husband. To be in subjection. Help children to obey. Lord, we need you. We need to be spirit-filled to do this. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.